the relentless expansion of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure is a deep material force that lends weight to the far right. Because in a, in a particular historical situation, the far right could very well pose as the most reliable defender of these investments. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks especially to uh, Haymarket and to the authors of White Skin, Black Fuel, some of whom are with us today, um, Donia, Andreas, and Stala. Um, looking forward to um, a good discussion about this book, White Skin, Black Fuel. Um, it's got a lot to chew on, a lot to potentially disagree with because it covers so much ground. Um, there are significant historical references to centuries and centuries ago. It covers a lot of the nascent far right wing parties, um, a lot of the old kind of corporate corruption type stories that there are around climate change. There's a lot to dig into. Um, and so I'm looking forward to digging into it with um, the authors here and of course all of you. So let's just get right down to it. So I'm just going to ask a few questions to um, the authors who are with us today. And after we discuss a few of the questions that I have prepared, we'll get to your questions. So the first of mine is about something that comes up throughout the book, but is explained in the introduction and um, the first few chapters, which is the discussion of the various kinds of climate denial from the right. The authors of the book offer a rough historical periodization. Um, climate denial evolves, as they tell it, from an older version where Exxon Mobil's claim that there was no crisis at all was ascendant to um, what we have now, starting around 2016, where there's an ascendancy of a more fully ideological version of denialism. All of these denialisms, the various different versions, objectively shield fossil capital, despite not all of them being funded or directly controlled by the forces of fossil capital. Um, and these denialisms, it would seem, play into the possibility of fossil fascism, which is what the book is about, centrally. So the question is, what's fossil fascism? How did we get it? Or perhaps how did we get the possibility of it? And how does it relate to these various denialisms that get talked about throughout the book? Um, and let's start with Donia. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, thank you for for having us. It's a, it's a big honor to to be here, and and I hope for a, a great discussion. Um, and and so first, uh, Femi, before answering your question, I would like to take a second and give a little shout out to the rest of the group uh, and just introduce us uh, briefly. Um, so yeah, we're the Zetkin Collective. Um, we're an international group of uh, twenty people. 
so a lot of people <laughs> um and and um so yeah so we're a group of of, um, of researchers of scholars uh, some of volunteers some of students uh, and we were born back in 2018 um at the division of human ecology at lund university and we were brought together by by Andreas, who made the intelligent and very important uh, observation that um, while many had written about the rise of, of the far right um, and, and that many had written about the, the, the worsening of the climate uh, crisis, uh, no one had actually um, looked into what, what, um, what the far right, what role the far right plays uh, uh, in the climate crisis. Um, so, so this is really what the book is about. It, it tries to uh, fill out this this gap in research. Um, so, what we try is to to dig deep into what it is that um, far right parties have said and done uh, about the, the, the climate crisis. Um, and. Um, and uh, so uh, another thing that this book uh, tries to is is to put forward how um, how interlinked the, the climate crisis uh, and the use of fossil fuels and the development of uh, fossil fuel technologies are interlinked with with um, racism and and um, and also colonialism. And and so another purpose of, of this book is also to to um, build a bridge between the the, the climate movement, uh, which uh, unfortunately is is still um, predominantly a, a white movement. Um, so to build a bridge between the climate movement and and the anti-racist movement. Um, um, so so this book uh, should also be understood as a kind of a wake up call to these two movements to. to kind of be like, hey, we're uh, fighting the, the, the same battle uh, and we need to join our forces and, and, um, and, and uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, yeah, f- f- fight, fight these fascists, <laughs> essentially. Um, and, and, and that if we fail to do so, if, if this goes unchecked, um, um, we might uh, very possibly, as, as this book points out, uh, find ourselves in um, a state of, of fossil fascism. So what is fossil fascism? Uh, in, in order to understand what fossil fascism is, you need to understand what fascism is. Um, and, and fascism is, is a very broad term and it's very difficult to to explain um and it's one of these these things that gets thrown uh, around a lot but uh in our book um we use roger griffin's um um definition of of of, um, of fascism um and so the way that he um he explains what fascism is is um uh, by um is is by uh, defining it as a set of ideas that are are rooted in this belief or this myth um, that one's nation is is um, or one's nation must above all be be reborn, um, and and nation here should be understood as as um, as an organic community or a civilization that's uh, that is united by by heritage by blood or by by race. Um, 
So the term that, that Griffin uses to define fascism is palingenetic ultranationalism. So palingenetic meaning uh, the, the rebirth or the resurrection and uh, ultranationalism meaning uh, nationalism, but, but ultra, so essentially a nationalism that's on, on steroids. Um, um, so yeah, so so uh, the, what guides this this um, what guides fascism uh, as a set of ideas is the belief that one's nation is is or one's race or culture is uh, was at some point back in history this this grandiose thing, um, and and that now it's at a crisis point. <clears throat> And that it's being attacked by by alien forces, by 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 those who do not fit in this this um, uh, ethnically defined group, um, and and that there's a need to to gather forces and uh, make your nation great again. Uh, so here. Trump's um, slogan "Make America Great Again" uh, is, is a prime example of, of this. Um, um, so in our book, we we uh, we try to we, we explain what fossil fascism is um, um, by using this this term that Roger Griffin uh, uses this palingenetic uh, ultranationalism, and we add a um, a palindefensive element to it. Um, so fossil fascism uh, essentially is about having to. Um, to uh, defend uh, the nation again uh, and, and defend its its privileges uh, against um, against foreigners, against people that are uh, not whites and that are perceived of as um, as as en enemies to the white nations, um, and 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 so they do this uh, using very aggressive tactics. And so um, that said, it's it's also important to, to make a, a distinction between fascism as merely a, a set of ideas and then uh, fascism as a real historical force. Um, and so we use here uh, Robert Paxton, uh, who argues that for fascism to actually uh, materialize, to, to, to come into force, there needs to uh, be a real crisis that kind of instigates, um, instigates social uh, instability, social unrest. Um, uh, you need the you need the, the the dominant class, the the ruling class, to kind of feel that it's losing its power, its hold over over society, uh, and invites the the far right into power. Um, so, in a sense, when when this happens, uh, it, it can also be understood as as a, a desperate move from from uh, from the from the dominant class. Um, they, they've kind of exhausted all the tools they've had, and so they pull out this kind of joker card, which is the the, the far right. Um, um, and, and yeah, so just to clarify, we're not in a fossil uh, fascist state yet, uh, because we haven't had this this uh, crisis, this climate crisis. Is it's um, um, it's not happening yet, at least in 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 the northern part of the world, the, the most uh, affluent parts uh, of the world, uh, because yeah, climate crisis is reality for for the global south uh, for 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 many people. Um, and um, and yeah, so so um, 
so our our book uh, makes us a really good uh, good um, case of of um, showing that we're getting close to uh, fossil fascism. We're not there yet, but almost. I don't know if that replies to your question, but yeah, it does. Um, and I think the Palin defensive aspect is really important, but I want to see if Stala and Andreas want to get in. Stala? Yeah, I can have a little bit more on that because, uh, yeah, great introduction, Donia, and uh, yeah, great question, and thanks for having us. Uh, hey, Mark, yeah, and just add to this, this question, then. Uh, so one of the key questions that drive the, the, the discussion of fossil fascism in the book is, which crisis creates fascism? And the historical answer to that, uh, that was like discussed approximately 100 years ago, was like economic crisis, uh, obviously, ideological crisis, social crisis, political crisis, <clears throat> political with representational crisis, legitimation crisis, etc. So we posed basically the question, can the climate crisis also be such a crisis that might trigger or facilitate or help fascism get to power, fascists get to power? And uh, of course, as always we're talking about the future, we need to be humble and a little bit like that, but uh, that might be the case. There are good arguments for that. And I think we'll talk a lot about that and we'll discuss that. But it's not unproblematic though, because these kind of crises, political, economic, uh, ecological, might all be considered capitalist crises, but a different capitalist crisis. So there's something different with, for example, the e ecological crisis, climate crisis, than economic crisis. So, for example, for economic crisis, we know that we know that the capitalist class will need to do whatever they can to solve the economic crisis at any cost, and the capitalist states will need to help them in order to reproduce themselves as states, capitalist states, and the capitalist class will need to do this in order to reproduce themselves as the capitalist class, the ruling class, at any cost. This is like given in history, in history of capitalism, and this is also a way that capitalism reproduces itself and survive and all that. One big difference here is that with the, with the ecological crisis, with climate crisis, the ruling class, the capitalist class, don't really need to solve it. That's also a little mystery or a little bit twist on the crisis part of it. You just could let it escalate. So that brings a little bit uh, different thing to it. Uh, but due to political pressure, due to uh, yes, social pressure, due to social mobilization, due to science, due to <laughs> common sense, they need to address it somehow. They cannot avoid addressing it. So we have a crisis that needs to be addressed, but yeah, don't really need to be solved. And that's a little bit different from the economic crisis then, uh, which puts complexity to the picture as well. And But when we look at what will happen uh, with climate change, uh, global warming, we can easily see aspects or point at direction where we can see something like fascism might occur. And in the book then we talked about places in the mitigation process uh, say that there will be some kind of political pressure that actually will start reducing emissions 7% each year or actually will set to degree as a limit. And if it's not possible to solve that within the system, we will change the system. If there's actually that kind of process, uh, political parties coming to power, that kind of political processes being in power, of political forces being in power, what will the capitalist class do if they feel threatened about it? Will it go to fascism as a solution? Is that a possibility? Obviously, yes. 
And also we have different, well, pointing at a different direction, which is more like the adaptation part of it. What will happen with more and more uh, heat waves, more and more fires, more and more uh, extreme weather and all kinds of things. Uh, will there be opportunities for fascism to grasp those moments, state of emergency, those kind of crises, those kind of shocks? Absolutely, yes. So there's different routes in for fascism here, uh, so to speak. But we can also, as they don't really have to solve it, they can we can come up with all kind of uh, mixed know, positions and mixed kind of uh, things. <laughs> we, I guess we're going to speak more about green nationalism later as well. But it's easily also possible to to to, to point at the third like direction to see fascism in the future. It might a scenario like, for example. Okay, it was climate change. It was climate change. It was caused by humans, but now it's happened. It's too late. We can continue status quo. Yes, it's too late, and we need to start putting blame somewhere. And we can easily see the far right going to yeah, we definitely not blame. Put the blame on uh, white capitalists in the global north. Right? They will point anywhere else. So these are kind of the scenarios we're pointing to, and in the discussion of how will how could like a uh, warmer world leads to fascism. Yeah, that was one of the 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 discussion in the book about how we can't um, we can't assume that the acceleration of climate change relevant events will be a progressive force ideologically that there are. There's room for maneuver on the right, uh, as far as those go as well. I, I that was one of the more compelling parts of the book. I thought, um, Andreas, do you want to hop in here? No, no, that's fine. Go on. Sure. Um, so, um, unless anyone has anything else to say on um, the relationship between um, denialism and fascism, I want to move to. The second question that I had for you all, which is about the role of immigration in what is not yet fossil fascism, but what could become fossil fascism, the, the moment of the far right that we're in. Um, it was a good point Donia made earlier. So are there um, the discussion in the book ties the particular issue of immigration to um, proto-fossil fascism, but not just um, as some kind of wonky technocratic issue, but of course in a way that's inflected by history. And this is one of the kind of primary connections to race that these political, that is involved in these kind of political um, nexuses. Um, so generally, how would you Explain the role of immigration in what could become fossil fascism as you see it. Are, is it largely um, a similar story in different parts of the globe, at least the different parts of the globe that you studied? Or are there differences worth keeping track of at the party level between the party formerly known as the True Finns in Finland or alternative for Germany? Um, or if we prefer between the kind of political personalities of singular political figures like Le Pen from France or Brazil's Bolsonaro or Trump in the US? Um, or are we dealing with maybe not a homogenous set of cultural forces, but similar enough to have a kind of unitary analysis. 
Andreas, do you want to start? Oh, of course, you go, Dunja. Uh, so, so the the role that um, that immigration plays in 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 fossil fascism is is a very central one. Uh, if you think about the definition of of what fascism is, um, um, it's it's rooted in this belief that um, anyone that's not uh, white is is the enemy of 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 the nation. Um, so, in a sense, if you're an immigrant. Um, and especially in the EU, if you're an immigrant and you're a Muslim, you're you're really uh, hated on, and you're blamed blamed for um, um, for all the ills that's happening in, in in society. So obviously, when you have something like uh, the climate crisis. Um, the blame is is of course going to be on the um, on immigrants. Um, and and um, so so when it comes to climate change, uh, um, the, the global south is is uh, often blamed for for having uh, for overpopulating the the the, the planet um, and and. Um, and this way of thinking is is very dangerous because uh, one, it's not true, and and two, it leads to to this um, green uh, nationalism, um, which we talk about in our book, and and should be understood as this um, more um, advanced form of of climate denialism. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and and so um, and to talk more about the, the this green nationalism, if if you look at what's happening in in France with uh, Marine Le Pen's um, uh, party, Le Rassemblement National, um, they the, they they define themselves as, as green nationalists, um, um, as green nationalists. So. Um, so they they go from from they went from being this party that flat out uh, denies uh, climate uh, change to almost overnight becoming a, a party that acknowledges uh, climate the climate crisis um, and and acknowledges that this is something that we need to do uh, something about. Um, but they keep going, uh, um, keep keep on denying what the the root causes of of the climate crisis is uh, and and uh, shift the blame on to uh, immigrants um, um, so so in um, green uh, nationalism the, the idea behind green nationalism is that um, the, the, the climate crisis is to be dealt with with um, closing off the, the, the borders uh, and, and sending non-white people back to, to where they came from um, so yeah Oh, Andres. Yeah, Andres, I think you're muted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear me now, yeah? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I concur with everything that Dunia and Stola have said. I, I really want to stress that immigration is the central preoccupation of the far right in Europe. Obviously, it's not as central in Brazil, a country that we study. And I'm not sure it's as central to the far right in the US as it is to what we have here in Europe. Um, and uh, all of the European parties that you mentioned are obsessed with it. And one relation between immigration and uh, 
the whole climate question is the incessant attempt by the far right to shift focus away from the climate crisis and from ecological problems to immigration and to constantly harp on the theme of immigration as the big existential threat to us. Uh, and these these two issues, they kind of compete for attention all the time. I think we see it right now in Germany with a run up to the federal elections there late this year, where after the floods that were so uh, suddenly lethal in Germany this summer, the Greens are trying to push the climate issue back on top of the agenda. Uh, a little bit like it was in, in 2019 before the pandemic broke out, while the AFD, the far right, is, uh, of course, trying to portray immigration as the big threat to uh, to the German nation. And, uh, and, uh, 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 with, on, and this mitigation scenario that that we uh, that, that we sort of sketch as as uh, outlined. Is the kind of alternative rapid radical climate action. And we see this prefigured in European politics in particular in the past decade, where instead of dealing for real with the climate problem, immigration in societies in political threat to uh, European societies and so much of European politics revolves around it and and right now with the with the crisis in Afghanistan you see you see exciting and and Sweden and France are two countries that are strangely similar here because they share uh, a general uh, political discourse that had drifted very far to the right and where Macron in France and Stéphane Levien, our prime minister, are both saying we're not going to let the Afghans come here. Uh, we're going to have to keep them out. Macron is using terms like we have to protect ourselves against a wave of immigration. And Stéphane Levien here in Sweden is saying we're not going to go back to what was supposedly the catastrophe when Sweden received a number of uh, refugees fleeing from Syria and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan as well for that matter. And uh, uh, this, I mean, this prefigures uh, in a sense fossil fascism because so much of the politics is about uh, keeping those refugees, presumptive refugees from Afghanistan out. And a lot of energy is invested into that. While after a summer like this, when, you know, so much Europe has been on fire or underwater or battered by extreme weather, uh, there is still no uh, uh, concerted attempt to deal with the root causes. Also, you, you can, if you want to, you, you can, you can of course, see a climate component in the crisis in Afghanistan, because, because in this you can read about even in, in outlets like New York Times, Afghanistan has been very badly hit by uh, uh, global warming recently with climate chaos and um, uh, droughts that have uh, uh, hit the agricultural sector in that country very bad. And this coupled to COVID-19, it really is this kind of compound crisis in Afghanistan that you have, have spoken about, Femi, and uh, uh, and the Taliban on top of that. And if indeed Afghan people try to make it to Europe and you have countries like, like France and Sweden uh, almost literally building walls to keep them out, clearly uh, there is a relation between climate breakdown and uh, how uh, European nations deal with immigration. And it's it's unfolding as we speak. 
that's I feel like that ties back to um something um Stala was explaining earlier in terms of climate crisis being something that the present capitalist order has to address but doesn't necessarily have to solve. So so the political expedience of focusing on immigration is in part that in at least the short run, um, maybe even the medium term, it distracts from having to address the root causes of you know what's displacing people in the first place. Um, and and of and of course, in so doing, that obscures the role that some of these countries themselves played in those root causes. But I want to stay here a little bit longer because there's also a kind of deeper, um, less short-term political story that you tell in addition to this expedience story in the book, which is something that's talked about in the later chapters. You call it um, fossilized whiteness. Right? And, and you talk about the production and reproduction of a social order that can make it so that um, the example you give in this chapter is um, uh, a little girl born in Stockholm, right, ha bears a different relationship to the project of green nationalism that Don you know, was explaining earlier. Um, if her parents are Somali, than if her parents were from from presumably some European country um, or presumably Swedish in particular, um, maybe you'd want to distinguish between those. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a, a bit about the longer um the relationship of immigration as a particular issue to this longer story of the establishment of race as a global order um beyond the kind of short-term political expedience hey andreas yeah yeah i can try to say something i mean uh well, immigration in Europe has a particular uh, link to colonial history because in the case of countries like France, it's a Spain, uh, the UK, obviously, and quite a few others. Uh, immigration comes from, uh, stems from former colonies. Um, uh, Sweden uh, uh, is seen as a country without a colonial history. It's it's uh, far more complicated than that. But one interesting thing is that, of course, we've had a lot of soldiers in Afghanistan waging war there for quite a long time now. And uh, now that some of them are trying to reach safer ground, there there is this hysteria in Sweden about, oh, they're coming into our country while we have been waging war uh, on their uh, territory for, uh, yeah, quite a few years. Anyway, Anyway, uh, and um, our, our, our attempt to sort of scratch the surface, and I, I really want to stress that we're not doing more than that, to scratch the surface of the history of fossilized whiteness, is it's about how fossil fuels and their technology articulated with whiteness. And uh, this goes back to the colonial uh, period of the 19th century, and particularly the British Empire, which was the first to use fossil fuel technologies on a global scale in quite a few of their, their own colonies and as a way to project their power around the world. 
And uh, over the 19th century, we argue uh, the idea that white people were superior came to be based on the perception that white technology was superior. So whites were better in controlling nature and ha had more powerful machines, and therefore they stood above everyone else. And uh, as we show uh, some examples of, and I'm sure there are many others, this was quite often explicitly said to be about us having coal or steam or the other fossil fuel technologies, and this is why we are better. better. And then our argument is that this kind of fossilized whiteness, where whiteness became sort of ossified, petrified, stabilized, if you will, uh, because it, it is a it is a fictional and very fuzzy category, as you can see over time, but it became stabilized, congealed over the course of the 19th century around on a kind of technological core made up by steam power and its and its various machines and therefore based on coal. And then we see how this fossilized whiteness sort of, or we, we try to study how it has operated in later parts in history in the 20th century through through automobility, the car, and to an extent uh, aviation as well. And in the late 20th century, immigration if we if we focus on Europe for the moment and immigration becomes this moment when all of a sudden you have non-white populations established on European soil and that poses a kind of challenge to uh, whiteness as as a location in social space where you have a concentration of privileges and the far right really needs to be understood as an aggressive defense on privileges or privileges and that's that's its role in the climate crisis as, as well and those privileges cannot really be extracted from um, the buildup of fossil fuel technologies and their role in the global division of labor and things like that and um, now th these are very complicated matters. And I'm, I'm not saying that we are sort of revealing the truth about these things. It's more like we're presenting a few hypotheses and perhaps signs for, for further inquiry. Um, but um, yeah, at, at the present moment, you really see uh, immigration and fossilized whiteness, at least in Europe, uh, meeting and, and crossing paths and intersecting in the Um, Stala, Donia, um, any additions? All right. Um, so the third question that um, I've prepared for the authors here um, is about the thing that they call fossil capital. And so throughout the book, there are careful descriptions of the particular political forces that we have right now in climate emergency. Um, and in the introduction, there's a kind of revealing claim about these forces and the relationship to fossil fuels. So fossil capital as a subdivision of capital, um, the authors say, is not a class fraction, um, but rather um, this thing that they call primitive fossil capital is a permanent mission of a subset of the capitalist class in the way that no particular merchant or particular slave trader or even particular fragment of um, the earlier um, capitalist or proto-capitalist, if you prefer, um, class was solely responsible for what Marx called primitive accumulation. Right, so primitive fossil capital is more of a, a sort of function of capital as it is currently configured. 
So primitive fossil capital does face an existential crisis, both from the climate emergency itself, because we do, um, but also from some potential renewable energy-driven alternatives to our current social order. And some renewable energy-driven alternatives would, um, as Stala kind of implied earlier, maybe have capital reinvent itself in some non-fossil fuel-driven version of itself, um, but maintain a capitalist world order, world system. Um, so if that all of that is the case, and correct me if I've mischaracterized anything, um, what's the role of fixed fossil capital? So stranded financial assets, machinery, physical infrastructure, um, what is the role of all of that in the future we're trying to build, which presumably avoids fossil fascism? Stole, Adonia. I can uh, try to throw in something. That's a massive question. Uh, and uh, yeah, I love the question. Uh, I think there's two parts in it. One is the role of the uh, <clears throat> one is the role of the capital as capital, and one is the role of the physical infrastructure, which is kind of two different. As a human geographer, that's become two different things. And uh, yeah, both is super interesting questions. So when it comes to the first one, uh, this is uh, yeah, different ways to go through it, but then. To, to approach it. I wrote a paper a few years back with a comrade called Rika Valenius on this dual crisis of economic and ecological crisis and what kind of creative destruction do we need now, so to speak. And our conclusion, the, the, the conclusion or the topic we wanted to discuss was that could some kind of creative destruction of the uh, primitive fossil capital as a class fraction be the kind of creative destruction that would be needed and we framed it as, as some kind of non-reformist reform, which might lead us into a new form of capitalism, but might lead us out of capitalism. And uh, yeah, I think that's a very good question we posed. The, quest, the answer is, of course, uh, yeah, up to history to decide, and it's uh, very difficult to say. And But yeah, of course, that's kind of, uh, as socialists, we need to like oppose all kind of um, the whole capitalist class. But as eco-socialists, we need to start Particular with this, uh, this minor part of the campus class. In, yeah, I can also say something on physical infrastructure, but if somebody wants to go on this thing first, Tonya or Andreas? Well, I mean, there are, I think, two parts of your question. One is the role of, of uh, stranded assets and uh, fixed capital. Uh, may in, in general, in the situation, another is what do we want to do with it? And let me just say first that the relentless expansion of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure is a deep material force that lends weight to the far right in a sense. And what, what I mean by this is that if you, if you open next to the Shetland Islands, then that oil field has to run for a very long time before it yields all its potential profit. So by opening an oil field, the one that that, you, that Nor Norwegian government opened the other year is supposed to run until 2070, I think. The, these are so, uh, you know, gigantic 
physical things and um, that they require a long time before before their the revenue comes flowing um, back to the investors and they can yield uh, continuous profit for a very long time and therefore they create this immense inertia that builds upon itself uh, and this means objectively that the investors are uh, going to want to defend these uh, uh, these things and prevent them from being becoming stranded from being prematurely liquidated which is what we want to do and uh, that is uh, one of the deep, I think, material factors in our societies that points in the direction of something like fossil fascism. Because in a, in a particular historical situation, the far right could very well pose as the most reliable defender of these investments. We saw that prefigured, I think, with the Trump victory and to an extent with the Bolsonaro victory in, in Brazil as well. And you, you can speculate on how that could unfold in the future if you actually had attempts to shut these things down, while the far right is saying, no, we're going to continue with it. This is what the far right is doing in Germany with the coal mines, for instance. Uh, uh, the, the other part of the question is, what do we want to do with these things? And I think that uh, this points to an extent at least to the question of carbon dioxide removal, at least when it comes to oil and gas. Here, uh, it can be made that we don't see things, all of these installations, the, the knowledge built up by these companies and stuff like that, but rather they're, they're um, uh, repurposing towards the task of drawing down carbon dioxide uh, uh, from the atmosphere. Obviously, this, this points to discussion in another direction, but uh, it's something that we need to discuss on the on the left and in the climate movement uh, much more widely. And you, Femi, have, have, have written about it and uh, that we can't just have this blanket rejection of carbon dioxide removal, but it's rather the idea that we should nationalize, take over, socialize fossil fuel companies insofar as they are still private and uh, terminate their fossil fuel production and instead uh, tell them to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and uh, retrofit their infrastructure and use their skills uh, to accomplish that uh, quite enormous uh, task. Um, yeah, these are just some thoughts. Um, a more interesting question is how how do we get there? How do we force these these companies to actually turn their their infrastructure to to sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, especially if there's no no profits to to be made? Um, exactly, that's the big question. <laughs> so I wonder. Because on the one hand, sorry, yeah. please continue. Because yeah, obviously that is what is needed. We need to to. <laughs> suck carbon out of, of of the atmosphere but yeah how how do we get there do we do we take these infrastructures over or yeah okay oh, throw in or family do you want to say something um just just quickly i just wanted to make the observation that um on the one hand just having Extractive fossil fuel infrastructure seems to come with the political effects Andreas was describing, right? It seems to provide an impetus and a financial rationale for continued extraction. Um, so maybe the thing that one that occurs to somebody to do after realizing that is blow up the pipelines. 
Um, and you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the thing to do, or at least a thing to do. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it seems like some of the visions for, um, an alternative involve keeping some of the infrastructure. And alongside that observation is another that, um, only a certain amount of the assets we're talking about are owned by private companies and many of the assets are under national control already right so it seems as though there's maybe two different conversations to be had about um the kind of private fossil capital and um you know whatever saudi arabia and nigeria and angola and equatorial guinea ought to be up to as governments mm -hmm. yeah can i throw in something as um Maybe a, a boring comment here, but uh, in my discipline, human geography, and especially urban geography, a lot of discussion goes about, okay, we have a city, how can we imagine a city being different? And then discussion is about, okay, the physical things in the city, can we use them differently? Can we tear them down or that? It's a little the same discussion about physical infrastructure we have, how to use it. And somehow it is to start at the wrong end. It doesn't matter what kind of infrastructure we have. We should rather start with basic, like, eco-socialist economic planning questions. What do we want to produce where and how and by whom? What kind of energy we need? How, what kind of technology do we need and how to do that? And then all the questions of landscapes, infrastructure, how to build cities, how to build the transport, how to organize transportation, all that follows from that. If we start with the question, how to organize production and consumption and distribution according to uh, human needs and the needs of or the limits of nature, the, the whole the question, the whole question of infrastructure and the physical landscape will like follow, uh, which is yeah, to avoid some kind of uh, spatial fetishism in the discussion. That's maybe a boring question because it's quite fun, of course, to speak about what to do with a platform, and it is fun to talk about what to do with a platform. And we could use it to pump down uh, carbon in the ground, yeah, but we could also pump down carbon elsewhere. And we could use the same organizations to do this, but we could also create new ones. Yeah. All right. Um, I feel like I could ask you folks questions for forever, um, but we should we should address the audience questions as well. Um, so if there aren't any lingering comments on that last question, maybe I'll move to the first question um, from the audience. This one is from Jordan Kinder. And they ask, uh, I'd like to hear thoughts on the mass appeal of fossil fascism among the working class, for example, Canadian yellow vests, and how to counter that. Yeah. Um, yeah, go Someone? Ahead. Should I go out? I, I can throw out something. I think, and this is coming more and more in discussion now, I see different people uh, talking about making climate change into a class issue, uh, which is what it needs to be all about. It's not simple, but it needs to be done from the left, so to speak. Uh, the easy way out is just to say more green jobs, uh, but the socialist revolution is about more than just producing more jobs. Uh, so, but that is one certain, uh, definitely one important component, especially as Andreas mentioned, if the oil platform is already there, 
you cannot just scream shut it down without having a um, a plan B for a, for the workers, of course. Um, so that's one thing, of course, having a radical green new deal, whatever you call it, that points in that kind of direction with with secure job for people. But it's also another side of class struggle, which is not about mobilizing workers for something, but also against something. And then start putting blame where blame should be put, saying who is causing climate change, who's 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 driven the metabolic rift from day one under capitalism or from for a while under capitalism is the capitalist class. At not only as an abstraction and structures, but actual capitalists accumulating capital. They're the ones accumulating capital, which is creating metabolic rift and ecological uh, yeah, the crisis. And with climate crisis particularly, it's the primitive for certain start pointing names and start pointing at uh, businesses in order to create uh, some kind of class struggle, which is not only like we are unity, but also who we are not. We are not the capitalist class. There's something else, and that's also a ground for very important ground for mobilization. I mean, uh, Dunya, do you want to weigh in or? Uh, no. No, I can, I can just offer very briefly the the observation that in in the book we discuss a little bit the. I mean, we I think we have a subsection that's called. Uh, fossilized proletariat quack, uh, where the discussion of the level of working class support for these parties and for their anti-climate agenda. And um, we reject the extremely simplified view of the far right as a kind of working class force, as the kind of, you know, representative of the forgotten um, uh, the losers of, of, of globalization and posters. So I'll, I'll say just a, just a thing that um, occurred to me when I read the question is actually one of the, after I read the book, I was less confident than ever that I understood the appeal of fossil fascism. I, I think going into the book, I would have given a really um reductive answer about how you know at least the fossil fascists have answers to the or i shouldn't say the fossil fascists but i should say the forces of fossil capital have answers to questions working class people ask like how am i going to get a job and etc cetera, etc cetera. they're not necessarily good answers but they're answers um and so, you know, if I if I were to have said um, based on a kind of U.S. centric, I guess, way of thinking about it, if I were to try to guess what the appeal was, I would have given an answer along those lines. Um, and I think I had really one of the things I got out of the book was how um, truly ideological um this kind of newer more newly ascendant version of climate denialism was um and and so i think it's you know it's a question worth investigating or you know if if you folks out there in the audience are familiar with people who have investigated just who where and why this appeals to in a in a granular sense i'd be i'd be curious to hear about that but i you know i think that's the first question of how to counter it. You know, why? Why is it? 
appeal to them in the first place. And, and I think the things covered in the book go some distance to um, explaining that a bit. Um, is there anything else folks want to say in response to this? Saul? Well, yeah, in terms of who and uh, in terms of who, there's also questions of gender that need to be opposed. That these are, when it comes to the so-called, what we're thinking about, we're talking about, we're talking about male climate denialists from working class, they are, yeah, more or less all men, so to speak. And how, how, yeah, this for some is rooted in the car, it is rooted in the history of being white and the relation to uh, driving car or whatever. I, uh, but I think it's this. I think there's a small majority that really loves uh, this the fossil uh, capital in that sense. Coming from the west coast of Norway, where this is a particular big issue with the oil industry, of people from uh, my village and all that uh, working in oil industry, so many of them would easily switch their job to a green job, or whatever you call it, if it was a possibility. But it's not. It's not at all. So, so we more or less have a situation where a lot of capital, Adonai or middle or petit bourgeoisies or real bourgeoisies are denial denialists because they gain from it because they win a lot from being denialists. They gain a lot from continuing uh, drinking of oil, while the working class are denialists because they don't have an alternative. And that's kind of situation for yeah, a lot of sections in the west coast of Norway, and I guess and similar like situations where people work in fossil capital industries. So you think the um, the far right story at the level of political parties is a lot more is very elite driven? Would that be fair to say? So the people who are making it about immigration and tying that to tying that directly to the question of wind power or whatever else. Is that your impression? Even in the sense that it's definitely coming from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a, not say it's not at all an organic movement, but it's I would say it's only we don't kind of know how organic it is because it's definitely coming from above as well. Is definitely coming from above in every election and all kind of uh, political discourses and all that, all the time from the yeah, especially in Norway where the fossil industry is so linked to the state apparatus, it's impossible to avoid it basically. Mm. So in that sense, it's in Norway, it's definitely an elite thing is coming from the whole state apparatus leadership, including social democrats and conservative party. Andreas, you disappeared. Are you back with us? I, I hope so. <laughs> so far, so good. Um, the next question um, from the audience is from um, Great, I think. I apologize for mispronouncing that. So question is, how do you use the notion of racism in your book? Do you use US-centric notions of it that center around skin color or adjust it for Europe to include more cultural aspects? Donia? Um, maybe if you could start, I can jump in. Uh, I'm not sure I 
entirely understand the question. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we explicitly really do not use the US centric uh, notion of race and racism as necessarily attached to skin color. Uh, in insofar as that it really is the sort of American position on these things. I think that the best scholars of race in, in the US would uh, would deny that race is necessarily about pigmentation and, and skin color. Uh, obviously, you know, racial formations differ and race and racism work in many different ways in, in different contexts. And I don't think there is a one size fits all for, for understanding how this works. But uh, whiteness, as we define it and as we try to use the category, is not necessarily about being pale like me or something like that. It's about a particular location in, in, in the social distribution of privileges that that uh, at a certain point can become associated with light pigmentation. But people who are identified uh, or defined rather as non-white need uh, uh, be necessarily very dark skinned. Uh, we use the case of uh, immigrants from Middle Eastern countries that come to Scandinavia and that can be extremely pale, but they will still be treated as non-white uh, because they they have certain markers that are defined as making them belong to that category. Notably, they, they have Muslim names or, or they can be identified as being of Muslim heritage and things like that. So uh, we try to use a more uh, flexible, perhaps pluralistic uh, understanding of race and, and how it works in different uh, concrete uh, circumstances, I would say. I don't know what you Femi, think when you read the book if, if we're having a consistent way of dealing with these things or if it's too eclectic or I don't know. My, my perception of the US politics around this is that there's very much a connection between um, what would more often be called Islamophobia here and, and race, but but it seems, you know, it didn't strike me as being, you know, U.S. centric, which is not to say that it's right or wrong, but it just seems different from how we just how we talk about race here, um, which is maybe why, you know, which is maybe a not so good part of our immigration politics, because I think we are a lot more surprised about how strong right wing immigration politics is than we ought to be. Um, but that's, you know, that's just one person's opinion. Um, any other responses to this, Donia, Saul? All right. Um, let's see. The next question, um, Pam Rainey Lawler asks, is there any symbolism in Femi's background. Uh, there is uh, maybe just that it's going to be a long few years. Uh, no, there's there's no symbolism in my background. Actually, um, not to make light of it, somebody um, somebody messaged me um, pointing out that, you know, maybe not everybody uh, would be cool with having alcohol in the background. So apologies for that. Uh, let's <laughs> somewhere else next time. All right. Um, let's see. Next question is Alexander Fisher. 
Um, don't we have to use party politics to succeed in opposing the far right? Um, since the far right is in power, um, and and they mentioned the Green New Deal, so so I take it that's one version of succeeding in opposing the far right. Maybe what do folks think? Should I go somewhere, Dunya, Andreas? Uh, yeah, go for it, Stolen. So I'm not speaking on behalf of the book or the Setkin Collective because it's not uh, discussed that explicitly in the book. So just shout out what I want to say myself. Is that okay for everyone? And I think, yeah, personally, yes, of course, we need to use uh, party politics. Absolutely crucial. Uh, yeah, that's the question. But it's not. That's the second part of it. You also need to be, as of course, party politics itself is never only party politics. It should be as a socialist party politics, also related to labor union and anti-racist movement and climate movement and all that. It says also in the question, Green New Deal, question mark, as that would be the same thing as opposing the far right. And this is this is not a question. I think it's very interesting. What is a Green New Deal? And uh, I've been reading a little bit about it. I'm still not really sure if Green New Deal is what people who announce the Green New Deal says it is. It's a little bit different things, but still more or less some kind of center-left politics. But, if it, but imagine that just also this is not from the book. It's just from my top of my head. Imagine that the capitalist class need to relate to the climate crisis. Imagine that Green New Deals become popular. Imagine that everybody wants a Green New Deal. Of course, the political center, the political right could easily jump on a wagon and make a you know, social liberal or social conservative Green New Deal. There's nothing in it inherently that's left or pro-labor or stuff like that. It could even be like people are pointing out massive problematic sides about it in terms of and uh, new energy colonialism or whatever you want to call it. It could also be part of a reactionary Green New Deal. So, yeah, I'm pro-Green New Deal, as most people who are pro-Green New Deal are progressive people. But I, I think that's, uh, that concept could easily be taken and stolen by a reactionary group. And that's something that we should not like invest too much in the concept, but rather in the content, of course. Maybe obvious, but it needs to be said because the concept is becoming such a popular thing. Um, so so just to answer the, the, the first question, um, if, if we need to use political parties to, to succeed opposing the far right, uh, yes, we do, of course. But to actually get uh, political parties to... to um, to act in, in, in favor of the population, you need, uh, I think, you need a, a movement. You need to push uh, political parties to to uh, act in your favor because whether they're left or, or right, they're going to act in their own uh, own favor and, and try to uh, protect their own uh, privileges. Um, so so yeah, I, I think that's you need. We need a, a sort of of uh, social movement, um, mass movements, um, to instigate a, a change in in politics. I mean, the, let me just uh, push Dunya a little bit on this because Denmark is really 
fascinating example of how it's not sufficient to dislodge the far right and get another party in power. Uh, I mean, the, the, or what do you say, Dunya? I mean, the Social Democrats were supposed to be the anti-far right party, but. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in Denmark, you have the Social Democrats, which on paper is a, a left party. But the the politics, the the policies that they've been implementing for the last the last couple of years are are really to to, to the right, um, and 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 uh, and they do this because they they want to get reelected, and they know that that's the way to to get reelected is to take over the policies that the far right um, that the far right. Um, uh, want um, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, were you going to add something, or should we move on? We can move on. All right. Um, next question is from Mila Political. Uh, they ask, can the systemic qualities be alienated from the kind of infrastructure built under them? And I, I, I'm taking it that that's a reference to the last question I asked about what to do about. So can systemic qualities be alienated from the kind of infrastructure built under them? Yeah. Well, well, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure if I understand the question, but if it refers to uh, the sort of argument I had around uh, carbon dioxide removal, um, I, I take the question to mean: Can you really maintain any of the material infrastructure that fossil capital has has established uh, without it having that kind of effect? Just use it for another purpose or something. Well, clearly that, that would be very difficult, but it's also the case that if you want to do something like direct air capture, you know, using um, technology to capture CO2 from the air and pump it into the ground, the companies that know most about how to deal with CO2, how to inject it into the ground, how to uh, yeah, scrub it out of the air and things like that happen to be the, the, the oil and gas companies. So why not, why not make use of that knowledge and those technical skills for that purpose? This is not an argument that I have invented. It's, it's Hojin Buck and others who have, who have made that argument. And it's pretty convincing in my view. Um, yeah, uh, but that would entail a massive uh, class struggle, or at least, uh, well, not not necessarily a class struggle in the in the old-fashioned sense of of workers against capitalists, but it would definitely require uh, that we inflict an an, an epical defeat on primitive capital. We, you know, impose our Power on the planet somehow, and as Dunya said, the big question is how do we do this? Somehow force them to stop extracting fossil fuels for profit and instead make them clean up the mess that they have done. In an ideal world, you would have ExxonMobil and Shell and BP and other oil and gas companies based in the global north 
do this, you know, clean up the mess that they have created, and you would you would make it an obligation for rich countries, for those who who are responsible for accumulating most of the CO2 in the atmosphere, to uh, uh, restore the climate by uh, by doing this um, kind of cleanup work. Uh, and this, I don't know if you agree with me here, Femi, I mean, this ties into the whole question of climate reparations and things like that. But I think that in the in the long term, or it's not necessarily in the long term, but in the next few years and decades, this is an argument that we should make that uh, you, you, you rich people, uh, you, you capitalists, you investors, you can't just wreck the planet without taking any responsibility for it. If you don't, we're going to force you to take on this responsibility and clean up uh, uh, all this rubbish that you put put up there. I don't know what you say. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've also found, you know, Buck's argument pretty convincing on this. And, you know, um, in a way, It's the it's about the the furthest you can go as far as um, emissions goes. So shut down the fossil fuel companies and shut down um, emissions. Says you know BP and Exxon Mobil should emit zero and make zero profit off of um, those kinds of technologies. And we're saying not only should it be zero, it should be negative. Right. That's where the reparations comes in, and to the extent that um, both global north-based multinational companies and global north countries themselves um, can be put on the hook for this, the better. But that would be, as you said, a kind of world historical victory against primitive fossil capital. And it would also be a world historical political victory against you know, those on top of the world order, um, those countries on top of the world order. Um, and it's you know not the sort of thing we can, you know, it's not the sort of thing we can expect just any center left party to champion. Right? It's, it's the sort of thing that would be the product of a um, mass movement. But, you know, such is our task, I guess. Um, any other, any other comments on this question or? All right. So the next one I have from the audience is from David Simonson. They ask, other than green nationalists in France, are there any alliances between right wing and green parties in Europe in terms of voting together or temporary voting blocks, et cetera? For sure. Yeah. You're, you're seeing uh, Hungary and, 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 and Poland um, um, creating alliances and, and wanting to create this this Christian uh, white Europe. Um, I mean, these, these far right parties in, in Europe um, have been um, wanting to get out of the EU, um, but, but noticing that maybe the voters aren't uh, for that idea. So now they want to create uh, an inner circle within the EU. Um, so you could uh, in the future possibly see um, far right parties uh, creating their own um, EU that's based on on, on Christianity and and, and um, white privilege. Um, so this this could go ahead and, and actually happen. Um, 
There's also a very concrete case in Austria where the government now consists of the conservatives who are very far right on immigration and Islam and the Greens in a coalition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to throw in, that's, that's, now we're talking about the big, big parties. If we go into the, to the real nutheads, into the real far right, in the way with the world of conspiracy, you also find all kind of connections to, uh, yeah, uh, between ecologists and real Nazi or real, um, yeah, conspiracy nutheads, uh, which is a problem because if they're only neo-Nazi nutheads, that's one thing. But this kind of nutheads also try to sneak into the environmental, the more nuthead part of the environmental movement, uh, mm. we've seen in Sweden now recently as well. So that might be a problem for um, environmental movement as well. And also in Norway, something like um, one of the, it's a really minor environmental movement, but it's really like large in uh, attention, uh, having overpopulation as the main threat to, to the climate. Those kind of discourses you find if you go a little bit further on uh, in the scale, nuthead scale, can we call it that? So there you find all kinds of things. I think that ties into the next question. Um, which Jason Harrison asked um, what you were just saying, Stella. Uh, so th so the, their question is, I'm wondering if the panelists can talk about how fossil fascism and eco or green fascism connect. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can give my view of this. So, <laughs> Uh, when 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 we've been saying that we're working on a book about the far right and the environment, uh, often people responded by saying, "Aha, it's about eco-fascism," because uh, very very often people have this sort of uh, make this associative link between the far right and the rhetoric of the Nazi movement. And our argument in the book is that the far right, both in its manifestation as classical fascism and in contemporary politics, is primarily anti-ecological in the sense that it promotes the most destructive technologies. This is what it did originally, and it's what it does now. There is also uh, a current or a strand or a streak within it of environmentally sounding rhetoric that never really had any substance because it was all about beating up the Jews uh, back in the 1930s. And now when you find similar green nationalist rhetoric on the far right, perhaps most notably in France, it's all about beating up the immigrants, the non-whites, the Muslims, and perhaps also the Jews again. Um, it's not about undertaking any real climate action. So uh, in our view, green nationalism can be seen as a kind of derivative or secondary form of climate denial when it blames the climate crisis on immigrants, as it, as it is wont to do in, 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 in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not as, so far at least, it doesn't seem to be 
as distant from from fossil fascism as one would imagine. It's it just sounds differently, but it really is about still protecting the privileges and uh, uh, blaming non-white people. Then we we speculate on their uh, on the possibility of there actually emerging something like substantially ecological fascism, as if uh, in a in a in a in a scenario a far right party would take power and actually, I don't know, closing down ExxonMobil or BP and turning them into carbon drawdown companies or enforcing emissions by 10% per year, while at the same time attacking immigrants or or African-Americans or whatever. Uh, And uh, you can see some signs in that direction. I I mean, the the Danish government might be one case where you have a social democratic party in in power uh, being reasonably progressive in its climate politics while extremely reactionary on immigration. Um, but but so far, it's I would say that that's a marginal phenomenon. Uh, the 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 rule to me is that green nationalism and the kind of ecologically sounding version of the far right is just another aspect of uh, something that goes in the direction of fossil fascism. Yeah, I don't know. If you agree with me? Yeah, I can throw in that I completely agree. And we talk about these nutheads that I talk about the nutted scale. Uh, these are on the world of ideas. In the ideological level, they stream about something green, fascism or whatever. When fascism comes to power, it's always the most modern form of capitalism. It was the most modern form of capitalism. And it will be and still based on fossil fuel. Uh, independent of what we read in liberal media, how, how the transition is going on. So, yeah, I completely agree. And also, but also, like, again, uh, speaking about the Norwegian case, the far right party in Norway, Progress Party, was just taken very shortly, was more or less a denialist party. Uh, Coming into government by together with the Conservative Party, coming into government by accepting they say okay science, coming into government uh, having the most uh, yeah having the most uh, offensive or most uh, attacking or mo- most reactionary oil policy nowhere has ever seen and it says a lot. Uh, then leaving government and then going back to more denialist policy popular policy again. So this is just a flexible way of dealing with power and dealing with uh, yeah, this, the yeah the question on discursive level, while aims always to extract aims always to extract as much fossil fuel as possible. That makes sense. So um, I take it the position is. Um, is going back to the earlier um, definition of fascism that Donia went over when we started. Right? Fascism is a particular kind of historical force, and you might have strains of rhetoric that are um, maybe green-sounding, but doesn't necessarily mean you have green fascism in the objective sense that would involve nationalizing. Okay, got it. Um, you all said that green fascism, if, if there's a party coming to power, call themselves green fascists, 
It doesn't give a damn about the rest of the world in terms of extracting energy or minerals or whatever. That's one thing. Uh, it will most likely be pure rhetoric and uh, all that kind of things. Uh, yeah, so we need to keep that in mind uh, when we hear about these kind of discourses. Just want to throw that in there. Yeah. Let's move to um, another question. This one's from one John McDonald um, from Haymarket. So um, one of the most interesting parts of the book, they say, as a, as a U.S. reader, was the discussion which of the way that denialism has grown in Europe as the severity of the climate crisis has become more apparent. Yet there's still a sense here in the United States that Europe in general is much better on questions of environmentalism than our government is. Um, any thoughts on why the sense of Europe as leading the way persists? Yeah, this is this is a fascination of mine. I, I, I have to take the opportunity here to... Uh, present a little piece of evidence here that we excluded from the book eventually, and it's from uh, David Wallace's Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, that came out in 2019, where he writes, climate denialism has captured just one political party in one country in the world. And that's a reference to the Republicans, obviously. And he writes, I quote again, there is simply nothing like climate denialism beyond the US border. And this was written uh, in 2019. And to, to me, it's it's quite incredible that <clears throat> a, a very well-informed guy like him could write that in 2019 when uh, the Europe is filled with parties that deny climate change and are that are just as crazy as the Republicans. Uh, we, we, we didn't include this in the book in the end because we didn't want to pick on him and, and on his book, which is great generally. But it's it's uh, it's an obviously it's obviously it's factually incorrect what he says, <clears throat> and I think it speaks to a kind of uh, I don't know lib liberals uh, liberals in the U.S. looking at Europe as um, as a much more enlightened and sane continent than what they have to contend with in the U in the U.S. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the case anymore. If it ever was. Uh, and perhaps this also has something to do with, I mean, the historical absence of a labor party, a working class party in the U.S. and the perception of, of European social democracy and labor traditions as, as more progressive uh, than, than what has existed in the U.S. And uh, to an extent, that's true as a historical fact, but <laughs> I would say that uh, our countries here in Europe are in the grip of as many collective psychopathologies as 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 what you have in the U.S. And uh, you know, I, our our countries in 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 Europe might be on fire, or they might be flooded, or whatever, and they still are completely obsessed with immigration. And that doesn't change, or so far it doesn't, at least. Uh, and the parties that are obsessed with immigration also very much in one way or another explicitly or implicitly uh, deny the existence of the climate crisis. 
Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, this is this isn't in any way an exhaustive explanation for this misconception, but it, uh, just a, a way, uh, an attempt to really underline that it really, really is a misconception about the difference between the U.S. and Europe. Young, yes, I think you said it all, Andreas. Um. Uh, yeah. One maybe. thing I think. You, sorry, Donia. Maybe it's because the U.S. is just fills more or takes up more space in in the media, or I don't know. But it, yeah, it definitely isn't true. <laughs> yeah. Maybe also a little bit. Uh, if your president is named Donald Trump, you really feel you live in the stupidest yeah, country in the world. But, uh, and, uh, but now you don't anymore, so maybe Europe will look more stupid in five years, I don't know. <laughs> and Europe has been quite good on um, discursively trying to have some kind of capitalist crisis management on climate issues as well, and uh, having this kind of, uh, yeah, kind of policies trying to look very green. So the EU looks a little bit like green right now, uh, might change soon, while yeah, Biden might look more green in five years. Basically, it's our, yeah. 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 As as an as an American, I feel like I should try to answer this question, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's much more to say other than that. You know, it's maybe just the regular boring story of American exceptionalism applying itself in haphazard ways. Right? We're we're exceptional in military adventurism or whatever and just kind of assume that we must be exceptional in other ways we're just we just aren't for the most part um yeah um i think we're about at time so i just wanted to go around and give everybody a chance to say um anything in closing that um maybe it occurs to you to say um but one more round of thanks for me, um, for Donia Stalin and Andreas being here, for Haymarket for setting this up, um, John for helping us figure out how technology works. <laughs> or not. Ethernet cables and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Donia, would you like to go? I would just like to, to say thank you once again for, for having us and uh, for, for a great discussion. Yeah, same. Thank you so much. And uh, it was a nice discussion. And I can also say one little thing, because when a bunch of Marxists are gathered on the internet and talking about fascism, it always becomes very negative and depressing. And it sounds, and fascism is a real alternative. Fascism might occur. Things might go to hell uh, in the coming years. But the climate crisis is also opportunity for socialism. Every day during capitalism, there is also an opportunity for socialism. And it's, of course, easy to forget that when digging ourselves down this uh, depressive hole of uh, when or how and how could fascism appear. So, uh, yeah, for example, on a mitigation crisis that might cause fascism, we're talking about one premise is there is that people actually will do something about uh, the problem. And so just shortly, the socialists have been talking about trying to figure out non-reforms reforms for like 50 years, trying to, trying to create non-reforms reforms. 
basically stopping uh, global warming at two degrees uh, is the biggest non-reformist reform ever. If suddenly people say, okay, we're going to do that independently of the consequence of the economy, you know, they say non-reformist reform, none of us want. It's a terrible non-reformist reform, but, you know, it's, it's a massive opportunity for socialism. So we should never, yeah, stop being optimists. That's my uh, last word. Thank you. Let's leave word. that as the last word. Let's leave that as the last word. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for listening to us. And Thanks to you, Femi. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.